Welcome to Home is Where the Torah Is, the podcast series recorded in our homes and sent directly to yours. I'm Leon Morris, the president of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. In this series, we get to learn from six members of our talented faculty as they consider Jewish perspectives on the notion of home. Stay tuned after the lecture for a brief conversation in Chavruta I'll be having with Mati Rosenshine, the gifted architect of our new building, as we pick up on an idea or two expressed by our teachers. In today's episode, we will learn from Leah Rosenthal as she discusses the home and the marketplace. Traditional rabbinic literature, Mishnah, Talmud, and Midrash, are replete with statements regarding the study of Torah. The rabbis of the Mishnah and Talmud were instrumental in creating a Jewish religious and spiritual culture that placed Torah study and the Bit Midrash central to one's experience and practice. The rabbis of the Talmud discuss how to study Torah, when to study, how much to study, from whom and with whom to study, and many additional angles and perspectives on the act of engaging with the study of Torah. I'd like to focus your attention now to an additional perspective raised in rabbinic sources, namely where to study. This question too is addressed by the rabbis in the Talmud and actually lies at the core of a conflict between two important figures who lived at the end of the Mishnaic period in the last generation of Tanaim, just before the start of the Talmudic Amoraitic period. These two figures are no less than Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and his colleague and close associate, Rabbi Chia. In the Talmud, Tractate Moed Katan 16b, a story is narrated. A story of a clash between two great rabbinic authorities of their time. The story is slightly less than half a Talmudic page in length, and it reveals itself to be made up of two sections. There are two narrative lines within the story that are in Hebrew. The other lines of the story are narrated in Aramaic. This suggests that the full story as it appears before us in the Talmud might have historically developed as a construction on a shorter core narrative, the Hebrew-speaking one, which was later developed by the Babylonian Talmud into the longer and more detailed narrative before us. Let us read, therefore, the core story, the two lines in Hebrew around which the narrative develops. On one occasion, Rebbe issued a decree that they should not teach disciples in the open public marketplace. Rabbi Chia went out and taught the sons of his two brothers in the marketplace, Rav and Rabba Bar Barchana. Clearly, we are informed of a conflict. Rebbe, the patriarch, the Nasi, the highest authority within traditional rabbinic circles, issues a decree not to teach Torah in the Shuk. And his associate but subordinate immediately and publicly defies this decree. He takes his two disciples, who are also his nephews, and promptly proceeds to teach them in the marketplace. 
In this report, we're not told of the reasons for either one of these positions. We're not told why Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rebbe, issues this decree against teaching Torah in the Shuk, and we're not told why Rabbi Chia defies this decree so publicly and so blatantly, leading us to wonder and reflect ourselves on what the motive of these two actions might be. If we consider first Rebbe's position, why would a rabbinic authority of the stature of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi issue a prohibition against teaching Torah in the marketplace? Several ideas might come to mind, beginning with the fact that uh, pedagogically, teaching in the marketplace is probably not a good idea. Rebbe is many things, but amongst other things, he's a master teacher, and he realizes and knows that a place like the Shuk, a place like a public marketplace, is a place of many distractions, and it is not conducive to focused attention and careful listening to the lesson that's being taught. And when we speak of studying Torah, every minute, every detail, every second counts. So perhaps the prohibition comes from a pedagogical position of where is the most successful and effective learning going to take place? In a secluded, isolated, quiet, focused bit midrash or outside in the public marketplace? But additional ideas come to mind as well. Perhaps Rebbe's concerned about the exposure that teaching and learning Torah in the marketplace might bring about. Who else is in the marketplace? Who might overhear? Who might hear snatches of conversation or pieces of a presentation and might use that in ways that will be not constructive to the world of Torah, but destructive? Is it the Romans? Are they early Christians or other sectarians who might overhear rabbinic discussions and use them in negative ways? Is it uneducated people who don't have the context to understand fully the deep discussions of the rabbinic world? Might they hear snatches of information that might end up impacting them negatively? Is it because a little knowledge might be a dangerous thing? Or possibly, is Rebbe concerned about the influences that might impact the Torah that's being taught out in the Shuk? The Shuk is an open public place. There are many ideas, many concepts, many fashionable beliefs that are being distributed at being present in the Shuk. When you bring the Torah outside of the Bit Midrash into the world of the open public marketplace, it might be influenced and impacted by factors that are not natural to it and are not integral to it. It might be diluted. It might be contaminated by these ideas that are extant out there in the public. So we have to keep the Torah pristine and pure and loyal to its own inner truths and not let it be influenced perhaps by some of the ideas and values of the contemporary marketplace. I'm also very struck by the formulation of this decree 
focusing primarily also on the shook. What is it about the shook specifically that uh, is concerning Rebbe and leading him to prohibit taking the Torah out there? I wonder whether there isn't a concern that when Torah is taken to the shook and it becomes a marketable commodity and the forces of the market begin to impact the Torah. It has to be packaged, it has to be sold, it has to compete out there in the marketplace of ideas. And it impacts by definition. It impacts the way it's presented, what's emphasized, what's downplayed. Maybe Rabbi Hudanasi is very concerned about taking the Torah out to be yet another commodity being marketed out there in the uh, commercial world of the Shuk. In any case, all of these concerns, and perhaps others as well, lead Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi to issue this prohibition, implying or, or, or creating a world in which Torah is studied within the protected walls of the Bet Midrash. Rabbi Chia, however, immediately defies this decree, rejecting the concerns of Rebbe, either because he doesn't share them or because he believes that there's something more important than those concerns that overshadow those concerns, or overrule them, and that those risks might exist, but we have to deal with them because there's something so significantly important about studying and engaging with Torah out in the Shuk that cannot be rejected. Note carefully that Rabbi Chia takes his own disciples, who are also his nephews, the innermost circles of Rabbi Chia's learning companions, he takes them out to the Shuk. It's not that he's teaching Torah to everybody who passes by. He's teaching Torah to his most loyal and most intimate disciples, but he's doing it out there in the Shuk, suggesting that potentially that there's something critically important about locating the study and engaging with Torah, not within the confines of a bit Midrash, but actually outside, in the Shuk, in that world of commerce, of exchange, of interaction, that public, open space. The narrator of the Talmud, when he develops this story, offers us his own interpretation of what Rebbe might have been concerned about when he issued this decree. The narrator of the Talmud attaches to Rebbe's decree the following explanation. What was his exposition, the Talmud asks? What was Rebbe's thinking? What was he basing himself on when he issued that decree? And it cites a verse from the Song of Songs, from Shir Shirim, The rounding of thy thighs are like jewels. Just as the thigh is concealed, so the words of Torah should be concealed. By citing this verse, it appears that the narrator of the Talmud is contextualizing Rebbe's decree in yet a different angle, a, a much more specific and particular angle from which he understands Rebbe's decree. 
Torah is likened to the thigh of one's beloved. To engaging with the Torah is likened to an act of intimacy. It's an act of love. Engaging with Torah is something that's done in the privacy and the intimacy of an enclosed space. Just as intuitively, we all acknowledge that acts of love and intimacy between human beings is engaged in a private and isolated and secluded space. It enhances the intimacy, the intimate act. It is completely obviously inappropriate to be engaging in an act of intimacy in a wide open public space. According to the Talmud's commentary, therefore, the decree of Rebbe has to do with his perception of what Torah is and what is the act of engaging in Torah study. It is an act of love. It is an act to which is only appropriately engaged with in privacy and in one's personal and intimate space. Rabbi Chia, on the other hand, according to a uh, interpretation that the Talmudic narrative presents for him later on in the story, seems to be contextualizing engaging with Torah quite differently than Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. It is not to the Song of Songs, to Shira Shirim, to that striking and beautiful love poem that uh, Rabbi Chia turns to, to model his image of Torah study. Rather, it's to Proverbs, the Book of Wisdom. There, the Book of Wisdom says, the Book of Mishlei says, Chochmot b'chutz tarona. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. The proper place for engaging with wisdom, for perpetuating wisdom, for expanding and enhancing one's wisdom is out in the street. That's where wisdom belongs. That's where wisdom is acquired. That's where wisdom is distributed. Wisdom does not require intimacy. Wisdom requires openness. And the, because Rabbi Chia turns to that image of engaging with Torah, the most appropriate place to be engaged with Torah study is at least also includes outside public spaces. That's where wisdom is acquired. That's where wisdom is, is found. The uh, Talmudic, as is often the case in Talmudic texts, the conflict between these two positions is not resolved. The Talmud leaves us acknowledging the truth of both positions and leaves us deep within the struggle between these two truths. One needs a home for Torah, isolation, protection, leaving Torah pristine and pure and true to its own internal truths, as Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi seemed to promote. Torah is an act of intimate, loving relationship. But Torah also needs to be outside. Torah is also wisdom, and wisdom is not found in isolation. Wisdom is found and sounds its voice out in public spaces. Rabbinic tradition preserves and cherishes both Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and Rabbi Chia. The full and complete rabbinic tradition teaches both the Mishnah, the canonical text created by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, 
but also consistently draws from the teachings of Rabbi Chia, who brings in outside sources, known as Baraitot, to enlighten and enhance the study of Mishnah. Apparently, true Torah needs to be developed within the protecting and protected walls of the Bet Midrash, but needs to be informed, enlightened, and enhanced by exposure to the outside as well. I would like to conclude by sharing two more recent observations that are on my mind, rereading this story once again here and now in Jerusalem of April 2020. In the midst of these difficult and challenging times, we find, ourse we, we find ourselves in the global pandemic of coronavirus. My thinking about home and market, about the safety and protection of home, as opposed to the risks and dangers of the open public marketplace, is clearly impacted. Suddenly, in ways that I never experienced before, I perceive the safety and wisdom of retreating inside, away from the risk of contamination and illness that might pervade the outside. And yet it's precisely now that I feel so strongly the absence of the shuk, the public sphere of activity where Torah gains context and faces challenges that enhance and push it forward. I so miss being in the shuk with colleagues, teachers, and students engaging in the study of Torah together facing its challenges. Torah isolated in the protection of one's home feels lacking. I've been thinking of this story often as Pardes continues and advances its building campaign. Building a home for Pardes's Torah feels so necessary to create a space of safety and quiet. For Torah to be studied, discussed, and developed feels critical. To position that Bet Midrash in the hustle and bustle of a commercial hub of activity in Jerusalem feels so balanced and so right. May we merit to continue to balance the needs of Torah study, to create an inside and an outside, a home and a shuk for Torah to flourish and serve the Jewish people for many generations yet to come. This is Leon Morris. I'm sitting here with Mati Rosenshine, the architect of Pardes's new home, Beit Karen. Hello, Mati. Hello, and thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Leah Rosenthal's beautiful shior was in part about how we balance the intimacy of Torah learning with the desire to be in dialogue with the larger world. And I'm wondering, as an architect, how do you see the balance between what happens inside the building and what happens outside? Okay. Um, I think one of the challenges um, in every piece of architecture is, um, is how the transition between inside and outside takes place. Mm. A building needs to be identifiable, I think, uh, to the public, to the person viewing the building from the outside, so he'll know where he's going for the sense of orientation. Even in terms of urbanism, urban planning, uh, I think the right approach is for a building to uh, sort of say what it is, who it is, um, so people will know, so people will orient themselves. Um, and once the building advertises itself and, and says who it is, then it's the, uh, the, the architect's uh, uh, challenge to, to make the transition 
between the street, the facade of the building, to the inside. And in designing Pardes, we've been thinking about that a lot. Um, how, how a person comes from the chaotic world on the outside with noise and, and cars and, 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 and other people and how you make that transition into the building so the experience in the building is appropriate. And um, one of the mechanisms that we, we felt uh, would be uh, successful is to uh, lead the visitor to Pardes through a sequence, not to come right off the sidewalk, in the door, and boom, you're in Pardes, but rather to uh, show the facade, but then the uh, access to the building would be through a process of walking on the side, through green areas, through landscape spaces, uh, where there's an acoustic transition. And when you finally enter the building, you're, you've already had a half a minute or a few seconds to, to, to have that transition. And ultimately, you, you arrive in the building, and it's a little bit easier to, to, uh, to change your mode and, and, and enter a different um, mode of, of activity. Um, another, another important point, I believe, in architecture is, is how to speak about transition in the way spaces are perceived. Drama is one of them. Drama, not, not over-dramatizing, but when a person enters a building to sort of uh, show that there's a change that is about to take place here. And, and drama in spaces, drama in ceilings, drama in materiality and objects. Again, not over-dramatizing, but, but something to communicate with the visitor that something different is about to take place here. And that prepares oneself for, um, for the, 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 the study of Torah and the next event. I think that that is also achieved by materials, by acoustics, by light. Um, basically, using all of your senses to reacclimate yourself to the change in activity that one is about to uh, experience. Mm. It's beautiful uh, taking us through that moment of transition from the outside to the inside. And I'm wondering if you could say another word about the perception of Beit Karen, of Pardes' new home, for the person that doesn't step inside or doesn't step inside yet. Uh, what's, the, what's the message of our new home for the outside world? What will people, how will people read our new building from the street, from the market? We have so, a siren appropriately timed for the question. So you get a sense of our, our neighborhood. So that's a, a wonderful question because um, in a mixed-use project like Ardes, which has um, um, sacred and profane spaces to it or, or, or less holy and holier spaces to it, it's a real challenge. But we are um, working to find the balance um, of the facade, of the built masses, which are perceived from the street, to find the balance which talks about what Pardes really is all about. One primary piece is the student life and the sort of informal life and the openness that 
Pardes wants to the community and wants to the street and, and, and wants to, to show to the uh, larger Kehilat. We're here. This is what we're all about. And that piece um, talks about openness and transparency, uh, which we're trying to express with uh, larger openings, larger openings of glass, where at night people will see light and activity, a sort of hub of life and vitality that is taking place in the city. That's one component. The second component is the more sacred component, the, 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 um, the, the piece which is the Bet Midrash, and which deals with the essence of what Pardes is all about, which deals uh, with study of texts and study of Torah and uh, evolution of ideas. And the text for, for me and for us has become maybe the most inspiring uh, component of the entire building. Uh, studying of Gemara in Talmud. And the uh, Gemara page has become um, an inspiring uh, element. And one of the challenges that we're working on is how to, in an abstracted way, show that and suggest that piece to, uh, to the street. Um, not in a literal way, because, first of all, um, that's not my personal philosophy about architecture. I think architecture should be open to everyone and open to interpretation. And so the idea of abstracting the notion of letters and words and sentences and entire texts is something that we do want to advertise or show to the street. This is what uh, Pardes is all about. And so people will walk by and they won't necessarily know what it is, but there's something intriguing there. There's, there's something that conjures... Subtlety, there's something that, that they ask themselves, what is that? What is that all about? And even if they don't know the answer, it attracts them to try and see what it is. And uh, that should be perceived at night when you see the lights in an interesting formation to the street. And when you're on the inside, what the sunlight does um, from the outside. And so we are trying to balance this uh, um, concept of two types of spaces to the street and what Pardes is all about. Thank you, Matzik.